0: O Heavenly Father, we worship your holy name today and we echo with our confession, Lord, the words of this song and as we open your word, we see it emblazoned on every page that our God is great and he rules in the heavens. Our King is in the heavens and his crown rights extend to the whole universe, the whole cosmos, Everything that was and is, everything that ever has been, is owed its very life and being to the Almighty God. Lord, you are the first and the last, the uncreated one. You are the self-existent, eternal, holy God. You are and you will always be. We confess that you are glorious and that you rule and reign from the heavenlies. We have been encouraged by the pages of your declared word that stand immutably fixed, that you rule as a rod from the heavenlies, Father, over the nations of the earth. And those who confess that there is a great God apart from you, the heavens merely laugh in derision, and their confession is stored up as judgment against them, unless they repent. But we, your people, have repented. We have put aside, Lord, those thoughts that there is any ground to stand on aside from the redemption, the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ provided for us by a sovereign God who has seen fit to reach into history and reunite sinful man with a holy God. And upon that basis we worship today. And upon the confidence of that truth we stake our eternal claim. All of this not on our own resolve but by the same Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, quickening our mortal body and our confession unto faith and ultimately eternal life. We thank you for these truths, Lord, and may the basis and hope of our salvation carry us, Lord, unwaveringly through any intermediate intermediate trials between now and glory, that your name might be glorified through the lives and the lips of your people, And that your kingdom might advance. And Lord, the unfilled coffers of heaven might be filled with more souls this year. Upon the proclamation of salvation in Jesus Christ alone. And it's in that holy name we pray this morning. In Jesus' holy name. Amen. Praise the Lord. What a privilege to welcome another year with you this morning. 2014 dawns on us this week and this our first Sunday of this new year. Finds us in 2nd Chronicles chapter 20. So I'd invite you to turn there with me. You can mark that page and also we'll touch on Nehemiah 9 as well. We've been there already this morning, but I just want to pick up a few more verses from Nehemiah 9. This morning's message will be another overview message and it actually builds on a message that I preached exactly a year ago. January 6th, last year, 2013, I preached a message entitled, A Reformation Vision. Today really is a sequel to that message and while it may not uh, remain fresh in your mind, you might touch on that message or review it this week via the internet And listen again, in Nehemiah chapter 9, which was our text last year, the context there is the people of God are returning to the land of promise, and we find principles of this reconstitution of worship and of a society based on the lordship of Almighty God once again. And you might recall that we studied last year a few of the influential figures and factors that attended this historically significant moment. We also talked about the fact that in verse 2 and Nehemiah 9, the Israelites separated themselves from all the foreigners and stood and confessed their sin and the iniquity of their fathers. We mentioned last year the significance of confessing generational sins. We talked about, by contrast, how the gospel and its effects have been reduced a lot of times in our modern day context to the individual's piety or holiness before the Lord. And salvation certainly begins there. But we should not expect its effects not to go beyond our soul and our intimate relationship, prayer closet, life between us and Almighty God, but in fact, The effects of our great salvation ought to bleed over into the rest of our order in society, in families, in our vocations, the things that we do with our time in spending our time and study and educating our children, devotions in the evening, maybe our career paths and choices, our scholarly pursuits, all of that is meant to be affected fundamentally by Our change of heart and life when we come to Christ. The Old Testament is helpful in applying principles like that more comprehensively than we may be used to today. We are to confess our own sins, but we are also to confess the sins generationally that have rendered us impotent as a people from declaring the glory of God. I'm freshly reminded in the confession of the people of God of old how much repair is needed in our day. Do we stand up for a quarter day just to give deference to the Holy Word of God? Are we willing to make a stand as people to say, we'll allocate because God is worthy a quarter of our day simply to worship Him? As these events unfold, and they really are significant, and as much as they evidence A fundamental belief in the lordship of the almighty God and the implications of his sovereignty for the organization of this people, a go on to stand on the history that they saw God as sovereignly directing that gave them the providential course and foundation where they stood that very day in the book of Nehemiah. And those were the verses we read earlier this morning. As they began to recount their own history, and to worship God simultaneously. Recounting history and worshiping God simultaneously. That brief introduction and overview of last year's message brings me to the title of today, A Textbook Awakening. The title of this morning's message is A Textbook Awakening. It's a play on words really to illustrate two truths. First of all, the Bible defines revival. The Bible defines awakening. The Bible, in short and in summary, defines hope for the future. That's a very basic statement for us, and it should be taken very one, as if it were Christianity 101 for us as Christians. But it's easy not to consider it so because there are competitions. There are imposters and counterfeits to revival. When we say the Bible defines revival, the Bible defines hope for the future, we are saying in the same breath that the Bible repudiates any counterfeit hope for the future. The Bible repudiates the Renaissance vision of hope for the future, the Enlightenment vision for hope for the future, progressivism, The Bible refutes humanistic utopianism, Marxism, liberation theology, the American dream, what the United Nations would like to accomplish, what international peace corps, humanitarian efforts propose to promote. The Bible repudiates any false religious notions, any revolutionary change, any hope and change, etc., for a brighter future, unless it is based on the same principles that the nation of Israel was based on in Nehemiah 9 and were ultimately fulfilled in Christ and declared as gospel through the apostolic era of the New Testament. A textbook awakening must realize or when we realize that the Bible defines revival, we can be assured that we're praying for and hoping for and hopefully seeing in the near future a textbook awakening in our day. Secondly, This play on Words of Textbook Awakening, my title this morning, illustrates the inviolable relationship between history and worship. The inseparable relationship between history and worship. Read with me again to illustrate this point, Nehemiah 9, 6. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven the heaven of heavens with all their host, The earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. You preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. This is a historical record of the work of God, beginning with creation itself. But it continues. Verse 7. Notice the record of the covenant as we read. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and you made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and so on. You have kept your promise, for you are righteous. Verse 9 continues with the record of the Exodus. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry, at the red sea and performed signs and wonders against pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land for you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into into mighty waters by a pillar of cloud you led them in the day and by a pillar of fire in the night To light for them the way in which they should go. Remind you of the context here. This is worship. This is a worship song. It's also a history lesson. The, The reconstituted nation of Israel at this time recognized that the relationship between history and worship was inseparable. We must reclaim in our consciousness in this day and age as a Christian people, as a covenant people, these our forefathers and then fulfilled in Christ, this definition of history or something similar. History is for us believers the recordation of the glory of God in relationship to time. This book right here is a precious historical record unparalleled, peerless in all of history. There is no equivalent. There is no competitor for the record that we have of the glory of God in relationship to time in the pages that you hold in your lap today. Why? It's because of this principle that the definition of history ultimately, if it's to be any, of any valuable service to us, is a recordation of the glory of God in relationship to time. And it doesn't matter where you're born on that continuum. And it doesn't matter what happens in the future. Everything is understood and interpreted as either valuable in so much as it is founded on the word of God or deserving of judgment in as much as it violates the same according to our God, His character, His declared truth, and His ultimate plan and foundation for the meaning of all of life and all of history a brief negative illustration for you. We were at a birthday party recently and, um, you know, uh, parents our age have little kids and uh, have birthday parties and, and invite other parents to come and bring their little kids. And while the kids are doing their thing, the parents make small talk and, so this was a group where, you know, we were probably the only Christians there talking about education choices and, you know, my child refuses to do his homework and this and that. And a parent commented in this conversation, I don't know why, to be honest with you, we got to study a bunch of dead guys' dates in history. Why would we even, why do we dwell on the past? And there was this sort of disdain for the record of history, even generally or secularly speaking, in the education of their children. It was only half in jest. I, it, really, you could tell that underneath that statement, that flippancy and disregard for the meaning of history demonstrated a cultural tendency to not understand what history is and certainly not to value the glory of God and the recordation of his glory in relationship to time, nowhere even close. I'd love to tell you that, you know, I piped right up with a great um, educational little mini seminar to bring our perspective around again, but instead of that, I resorted to a little sarcastic cynicism and simply said that, you know, this conversation could serve as well as any to demonstrate the problem in America today. If we forget that God is the governor of all things in history itself, and if we don't even care about what that has looked like over the arc of history and the course of time, we are the greatest of all fools. And we will simply demonstrate that He is powerful in our utter demise. And unless they repent, those that I was talking to are certainly headed that direction. I do pray that they repent. I do pray by God's grace that my family, as much as the Holy Spirit has given us a new value set, And given us a new hope for the future and a new understanding of history because god is god i pray that we would be able to guide them out of darkness into the marvelous light of understanding that jesus christ rules and reigns in the heavenlies and you either stand with him or you stand against his rod of iron as, an, as a clay pot that will be dashed to so many shards and scattered across the landscape of hell to endure the fires of Tophet forever. It's serious. An awakening in this country will be attended by this realization that history is a record written by Almighty, an almighty sovereign God And to glorify Him and to deny those two are incompatible thoughts. Last year, our Reformation vision, we talked about reclaiming the touchstones of faith and how important they are to the centrality of our worship. And there's no greater touchstone to our faith than Jesus Christ, born in time, crucified, buried, resurrected, ascended to the Father, and now ruling and reigning over His church and all of history. We look at the New Testament and the record and the verified confession, testimony of the apostles was rooted and grounded in their eyewitness account of historical events that took place in time. It doesn't matter how many liberal theologians or how many humanistic erasers are taken out of the drawer of the authors of today's history texts and put to the text, God's words will never wither, fade, or fail. And it nevertheless will always remain true that Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, the Holy Word stepped foot on the terrestrial landscape that we share as we walk and became a man, lived a sinless life, fulfilled the law to the nth degree, and died in our stead. History hinges on that truth and on that knowledge. I was recently incensed when I picked up a book written by a so-called theologian that was a relatively pedantic exercise on why this sort of phrase is used in this verse or not. And as I was reading, it occurred to me that this author used the terms B.C. and B.C.E. as opposed to the more familiar to us, I hope, B.C. and A.D. designations for time. B.C. refers to Before Christ, A.D. refers to Anno Domini, a Latin, in the year of our Lord. And regardless of the technicalities of whether or not that date falls in the exact moment that Jesus Christ arrived on the scene of history, one thing generally that dating system affirms, all of history hinges on that moment in time. I've been reading some other history lately, and do you know that Robespierre, One of the French revolutionaries proposed to change the calendar of that pagan nation at that time, around the time of our own founding, shortly after, to reflect the date of this glorious revolution. So they were going to begin counting the years on the date of the French Revolution. Only problem was that their efforts were so demonstrably foolish and in vain that they couldn't stop from guillotining each other long enough to get anything passed through their kangaroo kangaroo courts and usurpacious congresses that stood in the face of Almighty God. It was a fool's errand and it was demonstrated as much in history. Time did not begin when the French Revolution uh, got started with all its f- uh, fits and starts that ended in the Napoleonic regime and that empire that fell in just a short time. No way. The heavens laugh in derision at that attempt to declare that sovereignty and autonomy are within some sort of a government that denies Christ in their power to define. All the Caesars of ancient Rome tried to do the same thing from time to time at their own birth. They would begin the calendar. The reason I was so upset in the book that I was reading recently was this new kind of more tolerant general designation of history, B.C., the nearest I can figure on the Internet, refers to, uh, or sorry, C.E., the common era, or B.C.E., before the common era. What is the common era? Well, it's a substitute for any historical meaning. It's a denial that Jesus Christ fundamentally changed the course of history. It's a whitewashing with a political correct brush of the real essence of our faith and things that will stand. It's just a denial of the same. And if the heart of that author or anyone using those terms is a denial of the historical significance of the incarnation, it is high treason against the King of Heaven and it is not to be taken lightly. I'm in danger of overcorrecting in that regard. Please note as I make that judgment call, again, it's the heart that counts. When we worship the Lord, do we have in mind the historical record of His intervention in history? Or do we think of man and his powers as a being in control? History and worship are mutually inclusive. Nehemiah 9 demonstrates this, and the surrounding culture of the Hebrews demonstrates it in the whole Bible, in fact. Worship and history are inseparable. Or, by extension, we could say worship and not only history, but education. Journalism, or the humanities, which is study of philosophy, arts, language, literature, those things that are human concepts and constructs, all of them are directly connected to worship. When we mark the passage of time, how do we do so? What significant milestones or reference points or interpretive principles do we use? You can open up any historical textbook, and you can, with discernment, the Word of God applied, begin to discern what those are. Try to identify in whatever you read what are considered the historical, the significant, milestones, reference points, and interpretive principles. When you've identified those, you've identified the author or the editor's God. You've identified who they worship. We mark the passage of time by the Intervention and by the works of our almighty God. And so we remember history and we worship God at the same time. Worship and history are mutually inclusive. Last year, the final point of the message was instituting divine worship and edu- I'm sorry, definitive worship and education. When the people of God were reordered and reconstituted according to priority, they began to worship God in the way that we just read in Nehemiah 9. I invite you to turn with me to Second Chronicles, actually the end of the book in 36, in chapter 36. At the end of Second Chronicles, we find that this book was written for the express purpose of having a historical textbook for the people of God probably around that time. In 2nd Chronicles 36:15 we read the Lord the God of their fathers sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place but they kept mocking the messengers of God despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy Verse 17, therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand. This is the record of the Babylonian exile. We have this interesting note in verse 21, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Even though the land was under judgment at this time, even though there were pagan kings who had declared themselves more powerful than God, and they felt that they were uh, deserving of that uh, title and designation because they had reduced the temple vessels to war trophies. Nevertheless, the record of the Chronicles uses biblical interpretive principles to understand history. They knew that the only reason that they were in captivity is because what Isaiah said was true. Assyria and Babylon were instruments, rods in God's hand, to bring judgment on the Israelites. They didn't get away with anything. They only served God's higher purposes. And interestingly enough, we see that the, the duration of their captivity directly correlated to the word and law of God. Why were they in exile for 70 years? Because the land, every seventh year, was supposed to receive a Sabbath. That is, it was to rest so that it could be reconstituted for their health, but ultimately for them to honor God's dictates to them and to ultimately say, you are our provider, not our own two hands. And since they were in violation for some 490 years or so of these commandments, God said, for every Sabbath you've missed, every Sabbath year the land has missed, thus you remain in exile. Do you see here that these are not chaotic, random events? This is far different than the way our journalists from any of the major media networks record history today. Generally, we see no relationship between the Word of God and events as they unfold before us. Not so in the Word. Not so in the Bible. Verse 22, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah, where whoever is among you, of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him, let him go up. That is the close of the book of Chronicles. You don't need to turn there, but at the beginning, it opens with, we won't read it this morning, but nine chapters, I believe, of genealogies. First Chronicles opens, just to give you a feel for, we'll read just a couple verses in chapter one of 1 Chronicles. Adam, Seth, Enosh, Canaan, Mahaliel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah, Shem, Hem, Japheth do you recognize those names the very beginning of time with Adam the beginning of the generations and so it proceeds from Adam to Abraham the, the lineage the genealogy is given from Abraham to Jacob and then a genealogy of David then the descendants of David the descendants of Judah The descendants of Simeon, the descendants of Reuben, descendants of Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh, descendants of Levi, descendants of Issachar, descendants of Benjamin, Naphtali, Manasseh, Ephraim, Asher, then the genealogy of Saul, a genealogy of the returned exiles, Saul's genealogy repeated, and then chapter 10, the death of Saul and his sons, and the narrative begins with the record of the kings of the northern and southern kingdoms. I hope you uh, join with us in reading the Bible through this year, and some of us have committed to do so chronologically. It's interesting because this week in my chronological reading, Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3 were dovetailed with chronicles. Why? Because the record, the chronicler, around the time of the return of the exiles to Israel didn't say, hey, let's just not look, the past is the past, let's not... uh, you know, let's be forward thinking here. Why would we dwell on those former things? That was not their attitude and mindset. But in setting forth a record of God's work among them, a history that was a recordation of the glory of God in relationship to time, the chronicler began with one word, one name that represents the beginning of the human race, Adam. And he brings the history of God's work in relationship to the events that his people have experienced all the way up To that present day. Point number one in this uh, message has taken me a while to get here Old Testament context. The historical title of the book of Chronicles, which would include first and second, was this The Chronicle of the Entire Sacred History. Chronicles is merely a summary definition, an abbreviation of that longer title, The Chronicle of the Entire Sacred History. And Nehemiah 9, when the people went back, and when they honored their God again, and history and worship came together, they began to recount the deeds of the Lord. But it didn't stop with that quarter day of worship. It continued with a written record. A chronicler, we don't know who it was, was commissioned around this time to write down the acts of God in history from Adam to the present. And this was referred to, and rightly so, in our church history as the chronicle of the entire sacred history. Jerome mentioned it in the 4th century. Luther mentioned it in the 16th century. But here we see in the Word of God the marking of the passage of time by the significant milestones, reference points, and interpretive principles of the Word of God. And by this we know that this people worshiped the true and living God. This was a cultural necessity to both glorify God and incorporate education into their confession that God rules from the heavenlies. We mentioned a definition of culture last year. This is taken from our modern view of culture from Webster's Dictionary. I believe this is an accurate statement. What is culture? It is. The integrated pattern of human knowledge and belief that depends upon the capacity for learning and transmitting knowledge to succeeding generations. Again, what is culture? It's the integrated pattern of human knowledge and belief that depends upon the capacity for learning and transmitting knowledge to succeeding generations. History and worship come together and they form culture. If there's a discrepancy, Between what we think of as history and what we think of as worship, more often than not, you can look at what people consider history and you can find who their true God is. They're probably just a hypocrite in their confession. And much of the church, I'm afraid, falls into that category. If we are to return to a biblical vision for upholding the glory of God comprehensively, it is incumbent upon us to recognize the chronicle of the entire sacred history to see and to savor the work of God in the affairs of man, and then to take the principles of God's Word and to keep them in our mind to understand the goings-on in our world today. One example. A few weeks ago, I saw the newspaper and had an interesting little article in the corner. One a few years ago I would have totally dismissed or maybe even agreed with, uh, generally speaking. Mark Dayton, our governor of this state, mentioned that the blue laws were antiquated. The blue laws were a reference to the Sabbath incorporated into the civil laws of our nation at one time. It's come to my attention recently that whole cities like Philadelphia ground to a halt one day a week because the leaders of even the civil sphere recognized that as a created ordinance, God instituted a six-day work week and on the 7th he rested and man would be in violation and arrogant and arrogantly dishonoring of him if he didn't do the same and so it was that blue laws were incorporated all over this nation the sabbath laws the remnant that of them that remains in our legislation today is it's still illegal in some way to buy alcohol on Sunday in this state and governor Dayton's statement was this I think it's pretty well established that commerce is 24-7, you know, seven days a week now. And if a law were to come across my desk to eliminate the, you know, the, the, the Sunday prohibition on purchasing liquor, I would certainly sign it. Well, he's probably right. I mean, commerce is established seven days a week, 24-7. But would it be right to sign that bill? He's right that we've utterly disregarded God's word in relationship to culture, but he's wrong if he considers that normalcy standard the new right or the new wrong, according to man's arbitrary definition. This is just one example, and a relatively benign one, among thousands, millions maybe, of areas of life that have totally been missed or totally been lost on us To which it doesn't even cross our minds even as Christians to hold them accountable to what God's word would say. How many times do we read the newspaper with the word of God in the back of our mind and judge whether the events and the recordation of our modern times are being interpreted by biblical standards or by the significant milestones similar to what Israel used when they gave a sacred record of their history or of those reference points or milestones that would remind us where we stand in relationship to the Almighty. If we were to use such a standard, we would find a hundred reasons to repent with every issue of every popular newspaper. But it is generally lost on us. It needs to be reclaimed. First Chronicles 1 begins with Adam. Second Chronicles 36 closes with the return of Israel to the land of the promise. Where we're all, what do our chronicles say these days? Today I mentioned one humanistic chronicle that recorded the events of the uh, French Revolution. I find that era of history particularly interesting, especially as a contrasting study to our own uh, constitution and our own foundation as a nation. Inspired by the events of the American Revolution, the French Revolution got underway. But the consequences of that effort were so starkly different, it is just amazing in its dramatic, uh, in what it dramatically illustrates. Well, one thing that was clear to me as I was reading a record of these events is that editors of secular history books don't understand the difference. When Robespierre went out there and instituted the festival for the divine being, they don't recognize that that is utterly and completely different from saying Jesus is Lord. You cannot build a people, a nation, or a meaningful festival, or codify a section of laws and deny the author of righteousness. It will fall apart, will be a demonstrable failure. As big as the Lord providentially allows it to get, will only increase the fallout when it utterly crumbles and decays. And we're in danger, having left the foundations of our social order, of incurring something similar. As I was reading in this history of the French Revolution, I noticed back to back on the same page, first of all, a reference to the first confiscatory draft in modern times. And secondly, and the consequences of what that meant. In other words in their relatively decentralized state the nations of Europe had wars all the time prior to the French Revolution but they tended to be smaller affairs with minimal loss of life compared to today but the French Revolution changed all that when they nationalized the war effort and began to draft people into the armed forces and now when nation rose up against nation it wasn't just hundreds that would die but it was thousands And indeed, as the modern era unfolded, it was millions. In that same chapter, on the same page when I'm reading these things, there was also a record of Enlightenment philosophers of the day that thought man had advanced in his reason so far that war as we knew it would soon be obsolete. That power structures of this modern era would come to the table like the United Nations or something, and they would say, well, let's be clear here. Let's be reasonable. This is my strategy. This is your strategy. It's pretty clear that we'll win, so why don't you just give us these territories? They imagined that all international conflicts would be solved merely through negotiations. What fools were they? What fools were they? But more shocking still, the editor of this historical record didn't recognize this palpable contradiction on the, on the, the own pages, his own pages that he was writing before him. The wisdom of man proves false foolishness if you think that you are the prince of peace you will be judged a fool by an increase in death an increase in violence and such as marked the past century and a half or more of the modern era in human existence unparalleled death unparalleled destruction but the bible gives us the real questions to ask why is that the case It's because we don't consider history a sacred chronicle of God's work in the affairs of man anymore. And the church has been negligent in their duty to point that out. J. Gresham Machen writes, Aaron sent me this quote earlier this week, Modern culture is a mighty force. It is either subservient to the gospel or else it is the deadliest enemy of the gospel. For making it subservient, religious emotion is not enough. Intellectual labor is also necessary, and that labor is being neglected. The church has turned to easier tasks, and now she is reaping the fruits of her indolence. She must battle for her life. In short, Machen is saying that because we haven't declared Jesus as Lord over culture, we're being swallowed up. And if he were not to preserve a remnant, we could be utterly erased or marginalized into obscurity thank God for his sovereignty and that will never ultimately be the case but let us hear the word of God and repent let us begin to see that the record of history and worship are one and the same and who we elevate on the stage and the platform and the soapbox of significance is ultimately our God and if we place hope in man our hopes will always be dashed in this life but more significantly so in the next as we reap the futility of placing faith in another God but the Almighty in hellfire and damnation. Second point in this message, an example of application. We're talking about a textbook awakening this morning. And first of all, we've learned from the Old Testament context, I trust, that a chronicle of sacred history was given to us and ought to provide a pattern for our interpretation of events today. But secondly, how is that chronicle valuable to us? How can we look at the Old Testament, for example, and find applications for life today? Does Jehoshaphat, for instance, have any relevance on today's scenarios and situations? Turn with me now to our text that I said a long time ago we'd get to 2 Chronicles 20. 2 Chronicles 21 through 23. What are we to learn and apply from this text? Let's read here a record of civic or public contrition repentance and god answering the prayer of this people after this the moabites and amorites and with them some of the menuites came against jehoshaphat for battle some men came and told jehoshaphat jehoshaphat was a king at this time over judah he was the ruler the civic ruler of the people of god He he's markedly different in his rule though And this is a high point in his reign. He began to do some things that grounded his nation and solidified his leadership under God to a successful degree. And we read this account as follows. A great multitude is coming against you from Edom, they told the king here, from beyond the sea, and behold, they are in Hazazon Tamar, that is, Engedi. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. Notice what's happening here. A crisis has come and visited the people. At least so far, we have common ground with most Americans today. I meet people on the street all the time in the course of my business dealings who would admit that we're in a time of crisis. There is few that disputes that we have problems. Perhaps only the most <laughs> um, self-deceived or those who don't have the reasoning about them would, would say that we live on a trajectory that's moving towards health and happiness. It's hard to say that when the felt effects of a declining economy, increasing uncertainty and unrest surround us all the time in the course of our daily affairs in this nation so a crisis has visited us as a people just as a crisis visited the people under jehoshaphat but notice the difference in the response what did the ruler of god's people do well first of all though he was afraid he set his face to seek the lord wow could you imagine such a thing happening on a wide scale in the public sectors of our culture the, secondly, he proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. Deny yourself something of your flesh's desire and needs to recognize the omnipotent help of the, or the omnipotence of God upon whom our hope and future hinges. What is food for us if He does not answer our prayer? Fast from things that you otherwise indulge yourself with for a time to center your affection and attention on the Almighty. To be remembered that. He gives us our daily bread. And so in verse 4, Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. Verse 5. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? Again, history and worship, hand in hand. Verse 8, And they have lived in it and built for you in it a sanctuary for your name's saying, If disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, that you will hear and save. And now behold the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy. Behold, they are rewarding us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O our God! Will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. The relevance of Jehoshaphat for today. Crisis warrants corporate contrition. A crisis warrants corporate contrition. It wasn't so long ago in our own history where solemn assemblies were declared, days of fasting and prayer, seeking the face of Almighty God for the future of us as a people were standard fare in times of crisis. Listen to a founding father of this land, John Hancock, 1775, writing, In circumstances dark as these, It becomes us as men and Christians to reflect that whilst every prudent measure should be taken to ward off the impending judgments, all confidence must be withheld from the means we use and reposed only on that God who rules in the armies of heaven and without whose blessing the best human counsels are but foolishness and all created power, vanity. Those are powerful words. They're not original to John Hancock. We've already read them. O oh, our God, the essence that is, will you not execute judgment on them? We are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. All created power is vanity. We should place our confidence not in the means that we have, our war machine, our negotiations, our negotiators, our experts, our Pentagon, our State Department, our United Nations attempts, our false peace structures, our hope in the wisdom of man, the history of record of dubious alliances, balance of power, Politics, regulatory agencies, homeland security, national security association, uh, TSA, FBI, you name it. The acronyms have rearranged the alphabet to about the maximum number of permutations of regulatory agencies that this nation has cobbled together to ensure us that we are safe and our future is secure. And Almighty God laughs in the heavens. None of these things will ensure another second of our existence. We do not know what to do. The problem is our eyes are not on the Lord, and we lie to ourselves that we know exactly what to do. Would that our leaders, our people, us, we ourselves, would read the record of Jehoshaphat's prayer and repent, crisis warrants, corporate contrition fasting prayer confession there is even confession here of former sins the reward of our disobedience is now knocking on our door we should have obeyed you god and eliminated the nations that surround us but in our indolence and the words of mitchin now we're reaping the whirlwind Yet in this limited judgment was opportunity for repentance. Jehoshaphat the people recognized it. They cried out to the Lord who is merciful and answers the cry of his church and gave them undeserving answer to prayer. And we read it. Verse 13. Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Jehiel, and the son of Mattaniah, Levi, to the sons of Asaph in the midst of the assembly. And you see how important history is. Time and again, sown into the record is the providence of God affirmed in a lineage, in a family, and a record of his faithfulness. This is the textbook. This is the way the Bible interprets history. And he said, verse 15, listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you. And here's God's answer. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours but God's, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, go down against them and behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the valley east of the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Listen to these three imperatives. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. Stand firm, hold your position, see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid, do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, and the Lord will be with you. Secondly, application from this record in history, the relevance of Jehoshaphat for today. Not only crisis warranting corporate contrition, but a confirming of the headwaters of deliverance. Forgive me for interjecting that analogy. The Mississippi, if you visited down south, I haven't, but I've seen it where it's wider than it is up here. And as it gathers force, mass, and volume, and inertia, that trickle that starts in Itasca becomes a formidable body of water that you can, I think, barely see across by the time it spills through the delta into the the, uh, Gulf of Mexico, whatever that Gulf is down there. Better at history than geography, obviously. So, But here we have, in our state, where it begins. And if you take a trip up with me to Itasca sometime, I don't know if this still is true, but I crossed the headwaters of the Mississippi without ever getting wet by jumping from one stone to the next. And if you stood right there, and that was your only perspective, it would be awful hard to imagine from that wellspring came the mighty Mississippi, That was an expanse that if someone coming up to it, aside from its current, wouldn't know if it was a sea, an ocean, or a river because it was so vast. But if we content ourselves to stand upon the headwaters of deliverance, We may be two, a few, almost nothing, nothing at our disposal as far as resources that man judges valuable are concerned to deploy against the crisis. It does not matter. It does not matter if we confirm in our own souls and among God's people that the headwaters of deliverance are in confessing the glory and the providence of Almighty God and our faith is in Him. If He has saved us from perdition, Through the death of Jesus Christ, our Lord, what can stand against us? If we and our great salvation stand at the headwaters spiritually of of deliverance for hell itself, for the great white throne judgment, then we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. And though in this life the power and implication of our delivering wellspring might appear to the eyes of man to be only a trickle, in the course of broader history, and the scope of God and God's intentions, when His will spills into the gulf of heaven, that delta is so broad that no man can stand against it without being drowned in an instant unless he is included in the safekeeping arc of God's salvation. Israel at this time in their history, under their leader Jehoshaphat, confirmed that the headwaters of their deliverance was not their war machine. It was faith, confession, contrition, and a demonstrable aligning of their hopes and prayers upon the power of Almighty God. They were only to stand firm, hold their position, and see the salvation of the Lord. How does this relate to us in church these days? I am told by some cultural uh, people who study the the cultural whims and so on that the kind of preaching that we endorse here at Providence will likely keep our church very small. And I'm content with that reality. And that's just fine. God grows churches. Preaching and methods and means don't ultimately grow churches. They may grow it in one sense, but God does His work from the inside out. Now there is a lot of cultural pressure to change the way we do things in the church to accommodate culture and that's what Matron was writing to. He said that you must fight tooth and nail to maintain Jesus' lordship over culture or essentially you will be swallowed up by it. People are saying today that preaching is all but obsolete, all but dead. Meaning people don't value it generally anymore. Speaking of our nation, when de Tocqueville the French You know, ironically, the French political philosopher came over to figure out, all right, things are a failure in my country. Why are they working here? He wrote his seminal work, Democracy in America. He observed, among other things, that on the Sabbath, the whole nation fell silent. It was almost eerie to this pagan, assuming he was a pagan, because he couldn't quite understand why men would drop their plow their means of accruing wealth for themselves, leave their vocational ventures aside for one whole day a week, go into a place like this and hear what sinners they were. But somehow he recognized in the providence of God that that cultural reality in America was responsible in part for our social fabric. If we recognize that we were sinners, that ultimately our salvation was in Christ and that there is no hope for a nation in mere man's engineering and means, the way John Hancock said, then somehow, someway, against all odds, God is pleased to glorify himself in preserving that people. How else can you explain it? And so it was at that time, more often said then than now, that we culturally stood at the headwaters of deliverance when we confess that we are sinners, and ultimately hope for the future is centered in Jesus Christ alone. The relevance of this moment continues with corresponding worship. And with these words in the Chronicles, we'll close this section in a moment. We'll wrap up with Acts chapter 7. So in verse 18, after the prayer comes and this promise for deliverance appears before them through the mouth of the prophet, Verse 18, we read, Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites, the Kohathites, and the Korites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. They rose early in the morning. They went out into the wilderness of Tekoa, and when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, believe in the Lord your God, and you will be established, believe as prophets, and you will succeed. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army and say, Give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir. Who, routed, who had come against Judah, so that they were routed. For the men of Ammon, Moab, rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped to destroy one another. This is the divine province and providential interaction into the affairs in this crisis that God worked on behalf of His people. Notice that in the course of these events, that they were considered historically significant. The chronicler wrote them down. But more than that, the significance of history for this event, the people's attention and faith was brought to bear by remembrance of the Lord's work among his people. And so in this context of affirming the glory of God, God was glorified and he he answered the prayers of the people and both could be done because they were aligned with his will and purposes in a positive way. Crisis warrants corporate contrition. There was a confirmation of the headwaters of deliverance. There was corresponding worship that broke out and then there was this providential recollection of God's glory in the midst of them. Let's close with the New Testament context. We're making the case that a textbook awakening will happen when we recognize that God, the mighty messianic supremacy that we talked about of Jesus Christ is responsible for history and is actively interacting with the affairs of man on a day-to-day basis and relationship to Him, either in judgment or in blessing. And this continues to be the case. The question for us as we turn to the New Testament might occur, is this continue to be a pattern? I would submit to you, indeed it is. It's an intercovenantal pattern to recognize the sovereignty of God in the course of human events. Remember, first of all, in Matthew chapter 1, that Jesus Christ is introduced to us as the son of Abraham and the son of David. And the New Testament record the Gospels open with genealogies that remember God's providential, uh, affair, prov- providential intervention in the affairs of man and His preserving the seed of the Messiah as He promised to do so all the way up until the birth of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then we move on from that record of Jesus and His incarnation to the testimony of those commissioned to bring the good news, to bring the gospel forward. And we have the record of those like Stephen, whose sermon is too long for us to go over today, and the way that they spoke with power and authority to the onlookers, for those who had ears to hear, and even those who didn't. Let's pick up on the end of Stephen's great sermon, the one he was martyred for, in Acts 7.44. He says, Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it. According to the pattern that he had seen, our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Do not my hand make all? Did not my hand make all these things? Verse fifty-one. Here's the indictment. The people that Stephen was preaching to did not recognize any more the significance of the events that were unfolding before him in relationship to the chronicle of sacred history. And because of their stiff-necked obstinence to the word of God, this is what. The apostle proclaimed, verse 51, you stiff-necked people, I should say the deacon proclaimed, Stephen, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered you who received the law as delivered by angels and did, and did not keep it. And we know how the story ends, verse 54. Now when they had heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him, because he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Twice he's referred to the Lord Jesus, so far the righteous one and the Son of Man. He goes on, 57, but they cried out, the record goes on, with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, they called, he called out, his third reference to Christ in as many verses as we've read, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. 8 verse 1, A, and Saul approved of his execution. But we know the impression that these words made on Saul after he repented. The church of Jesus Christ could not and would not be killed. Paul went on to give the most glorious record of all of the New Testament writers in its extent and comprehensive understanding and interpretation of the significance of Jesus Christ in the events of history. And he declared in 1 Corinthians 15 that the eyewitness account of Jesus Christ appearing on the landscape of humanity would forever change the course of history. But as we see this new covenantal example of understanding the relationship of historical events to the Lordship of Christ, it's important to see that Stephen, this is just, I only read you a few verses, but almost the entirety of his sermon was a record, a textbook record of God's control, government, and intention over history. And he says, because the people he was speaking to did not honor it as so, they did not recognize who Jesus was, They didn't know that they were to place their faith in Him. And in fact, they were angered by His presence and slaughtered Him on the cross and remaining stiff-necked and uncircumcised inasmuch as they didn't repent before the whole council of God. They picked up stones to destroy the one man in this moment who had the ability to show them their sin and error. May it not be said of us may we humbly submit to God's full disclosure and the record of His Word throughout all of history. As we pray this year for God to move in the affairs of this nation, let's pray for a textbook awakening, an awakening that's defined by biblical terms and an awakening that recognizes the relationship between history, education, journalism, humanities, culture, literature, philosophy, the arts, and every area of life, the connection between that and worship. A New Year's resolution for us, perhaps we could say a couple, but this morning I'd encourage you to sign up to read the Bible through this year. There's a sign-up sheet in the back. If you are committed to, in your heart, read through the Bible this year. You can get a plan sent from Providence to you or you can grab anyone that you want to. That's one way that we can familiarize ourselves with the whole counsel of God. Secondly, let's remember and proclaim through communion this morning the significance of the historical event of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And thirdly, I'd like to issue a call to fast. This week... I would encourage you to join me starting Monday all the way through till next Sunday in fasting from something. Just denying your flesh something of gratification for a spiritual purpose. Let us learn the lesson of Jehoshaphat. Take seriously the crisis moment we're in and practice corporate contrition. We may not have the opportunity to be joined by our civil leaders to do so, but nevertheless, we his people remain without excuse. Let us Bear our souls in humility before the Lord in fasting, prayer, and confession of our sins. Related to this, I would ask you to pray for me because on January 22nd, I've been invited to speak at the courthouse of Crowing County for a March for Life event. And my intention is to bring a much shorter message than the one I did today to the courthouse steps of that figurative place of control or centrality in our little society here in hopes that God might be glorified in announcing that the only worthy response to the events today of today and His Lordship is to publicly confess our sins, to fast and pray that He might heal our land. Let's transition in prayer. O oh, Heavenly Father, as the dawn of this new year is upon us, We also want to recognize, Lord, that the dawn of history has been upon us since our Lord Jesus Christ entered into flesh and was born of a woman and provided for us, Lord, the substitutionary sacrifice that only hope for ultimate salvation. We thank you for this truth. It certainly undergirds every hope for deliverance for every believer not only in this room but across the globe and every one of your faithful servants made so by your spirit who have ever and will ever live. Help us to remember and proclaim that fact Lord today as we celebrate communion together and help us to busy ourselves with a life direction of repentance that would revisit and apply your word in more bold more boldly and more consistently and more zealously than we've done to this date in order that when you return or when you call us home, you might find us faithful about the great commission task of kingdom building for your glory and namesake. And it is in your name, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.